I know cops that have killed themselves, and that hurts. After I watched a great man drink himself to death early in my career, I sat at his funeral and I vowed to never again stand by and not do what I could for an officer's mental health. So here we are. You see, I'm not a mental health guy. I'm a use of force guy. That's my specialty. But mental health, I feel, is my duty. So a few weeks ago, I caught up with a decade old friend who in his time has been a sheriff's deputy, a police officer, adjunct professor, use of force expert, and he's currently a licensed mental health therapist for first responders. And I wanted to ask Matt, how do we keep cops mentally fit? And so I spent about an hour talking with Matt uh, about mental health and a few other things. At around the 15 minute mark, for some reason, I started using the word normal, as in how do we keep cops normal? What I meant was, how do we keep Danny King as close to the person that started the job after 24 years of policing? But this gave the inference that Danny King in 2024 isn't normal and that police officers who have experienced decades of trauma or even weeks of trauma or a really bad call that changes them aren't normal. And that's where I made my mistake. Lesson learned. You see, officers that have PTS and struggle with their mental health are completely normal. But that's the whole point of the conversation. You see, while my hope is to keep first responders the same throughout their career, I would tell you that Danny King from 1998 would not recognize Danny King in 2024 and vice versa. At about the 30 minute mark, we transitioned into talking about leadership and its effects on mental health. And then we round out the conversation talking about consent decrees. So with that, take a look and let me know what you think. I would love any feedback that you have, any comments, criticism, or any suggestions. Put your comments below and I'll answer them or I'll try and answer them. And the last thing that I would ask, if you think that there's someone who could use this, please send it to them. With that, let's talk with uh, Dr. Matt Steen. So I guess, uh, you know, one of the things if I'm doing a brief introduction, which I always hate talking about myself, is uh, I'm uh, Matt Steam. I'm a 23-year um, criminal justice veteran. I've been working in corrections, law enforcement, private investigation, work research. Most recently, I've transitioned into a career in first responder mental health, hoping to help law enforcement officers and other first responders transition from dealing with stigma attached to anxiety, depression, PTSD, and other mental health illnesses uh, to become a fully functioning member of society in their departments again. Uh, I have actively do research related to use of force and currently slower than I want to working on my book about the Derek Chauvin in the Minneapolis Police Department, looking at the incident from a cop's perspective, looking specifically at the use of force and not the politics involved. I know Liz Collins wrote her book and there's been some others that have been out there that have a different take on things, but mine's going to be more of a I think a practical approach looking at Minnesota training and law enforcement tactics and uh, trying to stay away from the politics because I think that dilutes some of what really happened. Um, I've been uh, recognized in federal court as a use of force expert. I write articles on a variety of things. Again, I'm transitioning more into mental health. Got a doctorate, uh, education, master's 
in criminal justice, masters of arts, in mental health, and a bachelor's of science in social sciences, and a various uh, professional certificates and uh, things like that. Uh, I have my own company. It's uh, Minnesota Blue Line Therapy. Uh, I originally wanted to call it Minnesota Blue Line Therapy and Haberdashery because of the Hateful Eight movie, because of the uh, disconnect. So I'm still registered like that some places. I haven't decided if I'm going to keep the name, but that's that's where we're at. That brings us to here with my friend. <laughs> so what made you, of all the things that you've done, what made you want to get into mental health? Um, is there something that you saw that, that you thought there was a big gap in, in the mental health system for law enforcement? Well, I saw both as a, an officer and as a, a cop that there was deficiencies both for bad guys entering the criminal justice system. I felt like there was a lack of compassion and understanding uh, that certainly doesn't mitigate any of the criminal elements, but I think there needs to be an understanding of mental health aspects because it's so prevalent in so many of the people that we deal with. Uh, but more importantly, I saw how officers and agencies weren't appropriately addressing mental health issues, uh, weren't recognizing it, and still treating it much like a stigma. Uh, you know, uh, I did a session last week, and I talk about that if an officer is at a therapist's office, it's already too late. Because most of the stuff that they've been building up to, it's just boiled to a head, and now it's overloaded, and they can't deal with it anymore. An officer needs to feel comfortable coming into their uh, world, if you will, and talk about some of the early signs, anxiety, depression, and some of the other things that hit officers um, way before any PTSD may even surface. Um, yeah. I think of a young recruit uh, who might be getting written up and might be uh, not responding to training but love the career and may be dealing with a whole bunch of anxiety because they're getting uh, jammed up. Um, needs to know that it's okay to have anxiety, to have anxious feelings, and how to appropriately address that, because that impacts their performance and potentially their job. And as we know, we've had cops that have killed themselves in parking lots and training rooms across the United States, and those are side effects that we need to appropriately address. So you talked about if they're talking to the therapist, it's probably a little bit too late. If if you had the ability to, to walk into an agency and set up a mental health program, what would you do? And, and what would be the tenets of the, the program? That's a great question. Well, first of all, I'd make it an outside contractor. <clears throat> I wouldn't do any of this um, yearly mental health checkups because those are just mandatory meetings that are a waste of time because a cop's going to go in and tell the therapists what they think they should hear, not what they want to hear. And, Part of that is, is because they think the therapists work for the agencies and somehow that information is going to get back to them. And the research tells us that therapeutic alliances are some of the most important things in helping drive someone's uh, mental health success. So if I have an officer and he goes in once a year and he sees a brand new intern or a brand new therapist and sees him once a year, there's not going to be any connection to be truthful. And I'm not saying that they're lying, but there's no necessity to divulge all the information sure. <clears throat> so it would be to find qualified trained individuals that are law enforcement adjacent criminal justice adjacent that can specifically cater to the needs of the profession um, and make it a protracted requirement or suggestion obviously I don't want to make it a requirement because then people are feel compelled 
but make it more that the people sitting across from them, them being the officers, <clears throat> that they understand what it's like to go through to be a cop. And that's where some of the disconnect is, is you're sitting across from a therapist who might be a great therapist, but they don't know anything about the world. They don't know the shift work. They don't know the realities of the struggles of certainly the past 10 years, more or less the past two years. Um, and sometimes they shine people on. I did, uh, like I did, talked about at the training session, I said, what happens if a guy walks in with a gun on his hip and he's a licensed police officer? What's your rest of your clientele going to say? Are you going to ask your client to leave that's carrying the gun? In Minnesota, you can't do that because he's a commissioned officer. But one of the therapists uh, really had a problem with that because she never thought about it. Okay. So we get a therapist that knows what they're talking about, who's experienced the system. Um, what do you do with the rest of the agency? How do you set it up so that the people want to do this? Um, what do they have to do in order to get these services? I'd say it's got to start from the ground up. Unfortunately, the chief executive might want to be driving this one, but it's got to be the troops out there that really want to connect with the individual because the chief executive may say, hey, we're going to do this, but the officers may say, mm, no, we're not, and that's the reality. So it would be a, a lot of gripping and gritting. It would be officers that are, I'm sorry, uh, therapists that are specifically contracted with agencies so the agency is paying the fee because then it controls the records and who has access to HIPAA uh, for certain aspects. But then that also creates a problem um, because people think, then, who is your allegiance to the people paying the bill or your client? And I'm here to say that the confidentiality lies with the client, not the agency. It's not a um, fit-for-duty exam by a psychologist or another professional. It's more of talking about how to deal with your mental health issues. But it's going to take years to probably get some of these programs up and running. I mean, I think of LAPD and NYPD, and it might even take decades at those agencies. Right. 10,000, 40,000 uh, officers. So we have, we have a therapist that knows what they're talking about. We have officers, um, oftentimes senior officers that are, that are driving this, that recognize the need for it. What do we do on a daily basis? What does that program look like uh, uh, for the, the lineman who's maybe just kind of worn out, the officer working the street? What does he do? Well, I think we do a lot of normalization and a lot of psychoeducation, is called in the industry. So uh, that would be talking about how it's okay to have mental health problems. It's okay not to be okay. If you're not ready to come in, <clears throat> here are some things, excuse me, to deal with some of the potential issues that you're having. So that would include briefings, meetings, newsletters, whatever you want to call it. Uh, one of the things I've seen with the officers that I've worked with is a lot of officers dealing with uh, a mix of anxiety and depression. Um, anxiety symptoms are driven when there's more stress. So how do we address some of the anxiety symptoms? So some of the easy things that I do to the people that come into my office with anxiety is I tell them to get a, a, a wellness app or a meditation app, start using it, um, start doing some what we would call combat breathing. Some people call it four by four breathing, recognizing and addressing your emotions. Um, and you can't do it on the streets. 
You can't look at a bad guy and go, you know, I'm frustrated at you. You make me unhappy. But when you're at home with your spouse, you can identify your emotions or your kids and start labeling them because frustration can be anger. <clears throat> it can be fear. It can be sadness. So it can manifest itself in a variety of ways. So it's not necessarily one size fits all. It's understanding that I'm scared and anxious. Um, so what type of app are you talking about? I've, I mean, there's so many apps out there. I'm confused. Um, is there a wellness app specifically that deals with anxiety and anger and depression? Or well, there's some, there's, well, I'm not going to recommend any because they're all different and they're all pay for fee services and stuff like that. But the one that I've provided the most direction to is one called calm. Um, okay. I think it's a, fee for service and what I recommend is it's anywhere between you know three to five minutes of meditation it's not like you're gonna sit there for two hours in a yoga downward dog position trying to figure out how to exhale and inhale it's somewhere between to. that's right it's somewhere between three and seven minutes of uh, just reflection I tell officers to uh, cut caffeine out well cut it in half nicotine in half beer in half, get good night's sleep, exercise, and um, sleep well. I also tell them to date their wives, which a lot of people forget about, is after you're married for a long period of time, the love is lost. And I'm not saying love is lost, but the relationship is lost. There's no courting. And so cops need to date their wives and, and, and treat them like how they wanted to be treated and how they felt like they treated them within the first six months to a year. Right. Right. Because if, if with the job naturally, if things go upside down um, and it's not fun, like it used to be. And I think most cops experience that and you're angry, you're depressed or whatever the issue is. Uh, and then the love of your life is no longer the love of your life. Then what do you have? Right. Right. You have a job you hate or frustrated with, and you don't want to go home. I guess some of the quick early symptoms would look at uh, a lot more noticeability of irritability, quick to anger, frustration, uh, rage for no reason uh, would probably be the most identifiable things. Um, obviously, an upset stomach or feeling of anxious. Also, ruminations or thoughts that you just can't get away from that are racing, and they don't necessarily have to be negative. They can be really anything. It's, it's anything that you can't control um, after a period of time. I also tell people if they can't get to sleep outside of a normal 20 to 30 minutes after they put their head to the pillow, then there's something in that day that is creating a problem for them. Caffeine, nicotine, stress, ruminating thoughts. So if you find that you can't sleep, uh, I tell people to get up and go into another room and actually get this thing called a book. I know it's weird. Some people, it's hardbound. There's paper in the middle, and they read it because there are some. There's anecdotal research that talks about blue lights on cell phones and watching TVs and scrolling, and that just creates a problem for us. Okay, all right. So let's do this. Let's let's take a brand new cop uh, who we want to try and maintain his normalcy to the degree we can for as long as we can, and then let's take a, a cop who. Um, is in that transition period where he's starting to notice things within the agency. Things aren't as, as fun as they used to be. And, and then the last one, let's take a, an old, crusty, cynical, burned out cop that's, that's seen the worst. Uh, 
and make recommendations for each of them. So let's start with the new cop, right? He's, he's, or she has a, a year on the road, loving this job, into it. How do we keep that person normal over time? I'd say start with education. Start with informing them of the realities of the job, what's going to happen. <clears throat> Get them connected with a senior officer that can actually be blunt and candid with them and say, here's what's going on with me, here's what's happened with me. Make it a priority with the agency. Um, but a lot of people harp on PTSD, and according to the DSM-5, just because an officer meets one of the first criteria doesn't mean that they have PTSD. So just because there's a traumatic event doesn't mean that they hold the rest of the symptomology or the rest of the criteria for the, the, the mental illness. So we got to explain that to them, that PTSD is, is not necessarily an event, but then there's also compounded PTSD, uh, you know, years of the job, seeing bad stuff that we see on a regular basis can create compounded or complex PTSD. So it's explaining the two differences just because, you know, you've been to 20 uh, suicides, that may be enough as opposed to a, a rookie cop on day one goes to his first officer-involved shooting and gets shot at. That might be a situation. So it's <clears throat> it's explaining the diagnoses and what they look like for people. Um, so that's what I would do with a, with a rookie cop. Uh, with, with the veteran cop, I would sit down and try to have conversations with them and ask them about retirement and what they want to do. Why did they get into the job and how can we really help them? Uh, retire because they're going to be the ones that are the most solidified that are probably not going to change at all and it's going to impact them sure. the most. Um, with the senior officer or seasoned patrol officer, that can go either way. I think you have to get out and have a therapist connect with the officers and explain mental health and what it looks like for them at that point in their life because it's not the same as a rookie officer. Right. You know, 10-year cop who's got two kids, was working five overtime gigs, making side hustles to make payments, is not going to have the same stress and the same life pressures as a rookie cop, nor as a senior cop. A senior cop is actually, uh, while probably maladaptive, is actually dealing right. with it maybe the best because they're functioning, they know how to compartmentalize it. It's the, the five to 15 year officer that's struggling with it and letting it leak out. Um, so they're the ones that are the most urgent to address. So how do we structure a, a for healthy living? How do we structure a rookie's day-to-day, -day, weekly? What are the things that they should be doing? Should they be eating out of the five food groups? Uh, should they be doing squat thrusts? Um, you know, writing letters and reflecting, what should they do on a daily basis to keep themselves normal? Oh, I guess just be aware of what the symptoms look like, be aware of the stresses, and be aware that it looks different to everybody. And when it comes to therapy, there's so many different coping skills that are out there in the, the literature that if there's a thousand techniques, it might work for one person, it might not work for the next person. You talk about writing a journal. You know, I give the clients that I work with and not all of them are cops because it's tough to get cops to come in, <clears throat> a variety of homework and activities. And of that, they only do a small percentage of it. So even within the normal population, and you tell people to do something for their own mental health or give them suggestions, they're not going to do it. So you have to find something that the officers are going to use um, to make themselves better. 
So I always start with uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs and look at the pyramid. If you're not comfortable in your body, you got to figure out how to make that more comfortable. So sleep, exercise, and diet. Um, eating enough calories, nicotine, drinking, water. Start start with the basics, build that up. Um, I would say it's a recruit. You need to drill into a recruit officer that mental health is important. You need to use the tax staff or whatever DI staff to help inform that as well as provide stress and the front-leaning rest. And then you also need FTOs and sergeants and lieutenants that understand the signs and symptoms of what stress looks like and what anxiety looks like and what depression looks like in their officers. They don't necessarily have to be clinical professionals, but they need to understand that uh, when activity changes, you have a high-functioning officer and he goes to a low-functioning. What happened? Sure. Something in their life changed. The sergeant, the lieutenant, the senior officer needs to recognize that and have those as, uh, I believe, Dr. Yates talks about the courageous conversations. Is going up and talking to them and saying, is everything okay? And we need yeah. to have that locker room talk a lot more. Yeah. When I, uh, when I first started in the late 90s, um, you just kind of packed it away and you didn't say a whole lot and, you know, you just dealt with it. And there were a handful of uh, people that I trusted uh, that opened themselves up to me. Uh, and it, it's one of those things that, you know, you see absolutely horrific things uh, and you're involved in those things. And then ultimately it starts to take its toll on you. And, and like everyone else on scene, you just go to lunch and, you know, you, you see him at the next call. And, um, and, and I saw people kill themselves and I saw people self-destruct and drink themselves to death. And, um, you know, one day I just vowed that I, I wasn't going to tolerate it. You know, I, I remember seeing a, a new guy, neat guy, man, he was smiling um, happy guy. And then I didn't see him for five years. And then one day we literally met up in the exact same place in the same Sally port. Um, and he was just a bitter, angry dude. Um, and it was sad because my last memory of him, like it was yesterday was of this sweet guy. And the very next time I saw him, he was no longer that sweet guy. Um, right. and I remember just kind of pulling him to the side and, and talking to him because, uh, it starts somewhere and, and he was, you know, obviously further down the trail than, than, uh, I hoped for. And he was just not the same person. And when they see a senior guy opening up and talking about it, you know, in the last 15 years in my agency, you saw really strong, really good cops that were completely open and it really changed the culture, right? That now the young guys, uh, coming on that respected those hardcore cops, cops, saw that those those cops were just open and and were very clear about their mental health and it just became the way that we just kind of did things we were just open yeah. with each other when you have an agency like that that's awesome but i'm going to say that that's the aberration that's not the norm sure uh you may also have that on a shift uh you may have that you know in a, a precinct a division depending on the size of your organization but that's fostered by good relationships between the troops on the ground and the command staff in that organization. <clears throat> and as we know, within the past three years, four years, law enforcement has gotten even more hyper 
vigilant and hyper-political and hyper-focused, anti-cop. So nobody wants to open up yeah. their um, their closet and let the skeletons out. Yeah, no, and, and I'm sure that there's there's huge swaths of the department that uh, weren't doing those things. Um, but luckily, I can tell you that it, it, that's always going to be the case where you have new people coming on and, and the openness that you had in the agency a year ago with this new infusion of guys uh, and gals that may kind of wane. Right. And so uh, the culture changes, the more you bring on people and, and hopefully there's enough people there to, you know, kind of bring them in under the, the right culture. But um, I, I think that, it's going to take time just like any place, but if your hearts are in the right place and there's enough hearts in the right place, it's going to bring people in because people are humans, right? right. Um, and and if I come into an agency and I run into Matt and Matt is uh, a senior guy that's very good at what he does and ultimately he uh, takes me under his wing and he just says, yeah, man, what, what we saw today was not normal. How do you feel about it? Or, you know, whatever the case is. Um, I, I think that I'm going to just, kind of fall in line with that or if i run into matt after the call and and he's just changing out going home or going to the bar um then i'm going to fall in line with that too so yeah and i would say there was something good for the 60s 70s and 80s and even before that where they had shift choir practice um because that allowed for at least some modicum of debriefing some camaraderie some unit togetherness and I'm not saying it was all bad, but I'm not saying it was all good, but it was something sure. that I think is lost in today's cop society is people don't uh, do that anymore. They don't go out at the end of watch for a breakfast or, or, or something like that, bad tour of duty, and go out with a group of guys and just uh, rehash it. Because that in and of itself is a way to address some of the issues. Uh, it's sure. real slight, but it, but it also builds camaraderie and, and um, kinship and fellowship within the organization. So if we have, um, <clears throat> for our leaders, right, let's talk about first line um, and then ultimately uh, the administration. What should your leaders be looking for in their officers? And second part of that is how can they um, keep their officers mentally engaged and well um, and on the right track to taking care of themselves? Well, I think it's easy for the chief executive is they have to put the budget dollars, put the money where their mouth is. They also have to allow the first-line supervisors, whether that be a sergeant or a lieutenant, <clears throat> to not, not, not manage anymore by objectives or tickets. It's to get out there and know the people and to um, talk with the people they've uh, friend Chris Bratt, and he's a police chief from Texas, retired. He said one of his greatest stories was he was in his office and he knew when somebody had a problem because their their demeanor changed and he addressed people and worked with people as opposed to the numbers. And the most important thing for that employee at a moment in the story was for that employee to be sent home and the chief kind of said, we'll figure everything else, you, you take care of yourself today. And that's right. the kind of attitude that, that we need to happen. And that needs to foster from the executive down to the um, sergeant lieutenant. But the sergeant and lieutenant can't be running shift going looking at, well, you need so many stops or you're reviewing so many bodyboard cameras. They need to be out there interacting with the guys 
<clears throat> and gals on calls for service and getting to know them because if they're just known as you know officer one you know whatever your beat is officer two they're not going to notice some of the subtle nuances they're not going to notice that you know matt came in early every day for three years straight he was always a half hour early shining his boots putting his uh, gear together now he's walking in five minutes before the start of shift he's barely making it to roll call uh you know some days he shaves some days he doesn't by the way the beard plays um you know those are the subtle nuances that 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 you need to see sure so you, you have to, to get see. a baseline of your people yep you have to get a baseline for your people and you have to <clears throat> you have to ask them questions you have to be able to have the conversations of something bothering you and you can't be a supervisor necessarily and write that down because that's them opening up i mean that's not necessarily a management call that's going to go in their personnel file it's just being a human being you know, it's it's knowing that when you have a, a new officer that has brand new kids, that could be the change at home is they're not getting any sleep. <clears throat> all right. Well, that impacts anxiety, depression, and 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 all the other stuff. Conduct disorders can creep up from there. Um, the people are going through a divorce. I mean, one of your officers has got seven side checks and he can't handle it enough. In and of itself, that's going to create problems. But you know, there's stress related to that. So you should be advising your officer, hey, you know, maybe go with one or your wife as opposed to all eight of them. <clears throat> but here's what's causing it. Here's what's causing some problems, you know. <laughs> it's all your girlfriends? <laughs> yeah, it's all the, it's all the girlfriends because they, uh, they all want to be sugar mamas and they all, all want cars, so you're working 90 hours a week, uh pulling the last-minute arrest <clears throat> to get, yeah. you know, three to four hours of overtime, plus you're pulling in all the other stuff you can. So it, in your leadership travels, in your education travels, what effect does poor leadership have on um, an officer's mental health or an agency's mental health? You know, in the last few years, law enforcement, uh, due to politics, uh, we had an outside chief that was, completely unqualified uh, to do what he was doing. He ultimately, um, because of his past, wanted to brand himself as a reformer. And so he took over a really high-functioning, well-respected agency. And to the outside world, he made it appear as though it was just a happy family. Inside, he ran it as if it was uh, uh, under a consent decree. And, you know, everyone spotted it right off the bat and it, it ultimately destroyed morale. But have you seen something like that? And, and what ultimately is the effect on <clears throat> the officers? Well, it's officers leave agencies. Officers leave the profession. Officers go down to um, not, <clears throat> not doing proactive law enforcement. Um, I'd be remiss to say that there's, there's not a cop out there that when the call for help comes out that they're not going to go. But that doesn't mean that they're going to be out patrolling the streets actively looking to get jammed up sure. on something. Sure. So if we're looking at productivity within a division, a precinct, a unit, an agency, if all of a sudden it goes to a high functioning, taking a lot of people to jail for good stuff, down to pretty much nothing, that's a sign that there's problems within the agency. That's a problem with the signs on the shift. <clears throat> so that that would be what's impacting the agency. And then 
the officers know if the chief executive is out for themselves or out for the agency. And they did. Um, they knew it. Everyone knew it, which made it worse. And that was the problem. Um, everyone showed up every day knowing that uh, they were they had to mind themselves instead of doing their job. Instead of going out and doing police work and working for the citizens, the focus went from doing the job to internal, making sure they didn't get in trouble. Um, and it just made rotten for everyone every day yeah. for years. And that's the way it goes sometimes. I mean, you take a look at some of the large agencies that have consent decrees and they, they can't get people. Some of the large agencies, period, can't get people. There's agencies in Minnesota that traditionally would get three to 400 applicants that have had one opening for the past year and they can't get anybody to apply. I mean, so these agencies that were high functioning, small departments that would, you know, be the dream for most guys because it'd be just enough action where they'd make it a good career, solid money in the suburbs, and they can't get people. Um, there was a, I think it was, it was a Coon Rapids, a, an area city, where I think they had like three applicants for three positions or something like that. But don't, don't quote wow. me on that. But there was, there's, you know, some of these departments have two or three openings and they're getting like two or three applicants. Yeah. We would have <clears throat> the year I tested, we had 900 people, 700 people, something like that for, for 20 spots. You know, I remember going out to Pekin and testing and I was one of, 300 on five days that they were testing. Wow. So you can't provide uh, advice to people out of state. Correct. How does someone get a hold of you uh, if they have just questions in general? What can you do for them? What can you do for them? What can you do for them? What can you not do for them? Uh, and how do they get a hold of you? Well, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, they can get a hold of me at uh, Minnesota Blue Line Therapy at gmail.com. I don't exactly have the funds yet to get a, a personal email, so Google is hosting mine. Uh, <laughs> so you're still legitimate, even though you're using Gmail, is what you're saying. Right. I, I've got insurance and license track. I, I'm working with all that stuff. Um, I can only provide therapy to those people in Minnesota, but that doesn't mean that I can't reach out to people in other states and find other providers. I can still be a conduit of information. I can't do anything clinical or diagnose anything. Um, okay. But that's where you just preface is, is I'm not licensed in your state, and I can't give you any legal advice or technical advice, but here are some things that you might want to look into or you know, some of the caveats that an attorney might say that kind of covers them. Um, but obviously, anytime you're talking about people, I'm not going to give them uh, negative advice. Sometimes it's, sure. I don't know what you got. You got to go to a professional in your state. You got to sit across from somebody and talk to them. I mean, one of the things I struggle with is the media hounds cops when they do a, a use of force on a guy for mental health. And, you know, God forbid they end up killing him. And they're like, well, they should have taken the extra 20 seconds to diagnose him. There's some clients that have been working with for years and they're still trying to figure out the correct diagnosis. Right, right. I mean, it's. Uh, Go ahead. The, the big blue book of diagnosis is, is sure fun to try to figure out and then how people are presenting, what they're telling the truth. And <sighs> So, um, 
you you travel teaching, right? Mm-hmm. If if someone, do you have any mental health classes that you currently teach? I don't. Um, right now, I'm focusing on providing education to the mental health professionals that are out there uh, providing uh, support to the officers and telling them, um, as an officer, kind of my experiences with the industry and how they connect and how they should support each other, uh, because that's really where it's going to blossom, I think, is you get mental health professionals that understand the industry. Right now in the state of Minnesota, I think there's less than 20 people that have law enforcement or criminal justice experience that are therapists. There are a lot of people that are law enforcement adjacent, uh, but not as many. So it's still probably a group of, say, less than 50, and I'm just pulling numbers out of my tuchus. Um, so there's not a lot of people that understand the nuances of it. So the more people that understand the realities, they can refer people on. Like I, I've had clients that I've had to refer to other people because I'm not the right person. Sometimes a therapist sure. doesn't know who they're getting through the door. You know, it's like, uh, you know, I, I don't deal with anorexic or eating disorders. So if I have someone that's coming in with one of those, I'm not the guy to see. You know, sexual dysfunction, depending on the extreme nature of it, I'm not the guy to see. Um, you know, strom- trauma, stress, depression, self-harm, I'm that guy. Um, but some of the other stuff, you got to go to other people. What would you say to the cop who's thinking about killing themselves? Get help. Make the call. Talk to somebody. Look and at protective factors. Look at what? Protective factors. Family, friends, things for them not to kill themselves for. I'd normalize it. And sometimes it's passive ideations. Sometimes it's the world would be better off without me. That's kind of a, a, a slippery slope when you start thinking about that a lot. You know, let's let's be honest. We've all probably had that thought in our life where, hey, it would just be worse, easier if I weren't around. Uh, I'd be, my dogs might bark here. 90% of the world probably has had a similar thought, a passing, fleeting moment, and that doesn't mean that you're suicidal. That means you're human. But it's a sure. continued thought. If that's the only thing you think about is the only way out is to, to end your life. Um, there's also impulsive, destructive behavior. You know, it's not just necessarily thinking of putting a, uh, the proverbial gun to your mouth or the temple. It's, uh, you know, drink until you're blackout drunk and driving your car 100 miles an hour. It's going to calls for service. Uh, you know, a jaywalking call for service at 120 miles per hour, and it's a dangerous call, and, and supervisors need to be aware of that. It's, it's taking more uh, abnormal risks for it. Um, but I would say that they're not alone, that it's normal. Everybody has those. And, and I think that officers and, and supervisors need to have that conversation because about well, everybody I talk to for a diagnostic assessment, I come in and I say, have you ever hurt or harmed yourself? Probably about 30% of the people have had some sort of suicidal ideation uh, thought, and about that similar percent have done some sort of self-harm, which is cutting, burning, pulling of the hair, head banging, and, and things like that. So it's a lot more prevalent than people realize. Really? It's, it's guarded. Yeah, it's guarded. Though. A lot of people protect it. Uh, sometimes it takes 
couple sessions for the people to be honest. Some people are honest right away and say, yeah, you know, I've cut myself for years. This is how I deal with stress. And then I preface that I'm, I'm not a, a you know, say self-harm doesn't lead to suicide, but self-harm is different sometimes than, than suicide. It's a way of dealing with <laughs> The Amazon guy? Uh, probably within the neighborhoods. Uh, the Amazon, Target, uh, Walmart, whoever comes to the door on a regular basis. Um, but that was one of the things I learned during my internship was is that with juveniles and even adults, sometimes the cutting on themselves is to feel emotions. It's not necessarily or to feel something. It's not necessarily to try to kill themselves. Um, obviously, that's a, a risk factor. Uh, you know, if you got someone that's a cutter and they cut too deep, they cut at the wrong angle, that could lead to a, a suicide, but it's not like that was their intent, where someone that's actively trying to kill themselves is suicidal. Now, these are some clinical discussions that we've covered in like a minute and a half, so by no means is this an expert dissertation on those types of sure. behaviors, and if you're having those, consult with an immediate uh, medical professional. I would also say that there's a difference between going to see your primary doctor and seeing a mental health professional. Just because they can prescribe medication doesn't mean they're appropriately and reasonably trained to provide mental health services. Right. I would it's also, just symptomatic relief. They're just just making something to make the, uh, giving you something to make the pain go away. Right. And I, I would say one of the things I mention when it comes to mental health is there's really three ways that you can deal with mental health. Well, four ways. You don't do a damn thing, which doesn't do any good. Um, you do talk therapy, which generally is the, the realm that I work in, and it's a lot of modalities, different theories, licenses. Um, there's pharmacological pharmacy stuff, psychiatrist stuff, medications that you can do that can help. And then there's a combination of talk therapy and medicine that is the most effective. So don't be afraid to use or consult with a doctor for some sort of um, pill that at least helps in the short term. Might help in the long term too. Um, but don't be afraid to have those conversations. I mean, that's one of the things I tell almost all the people I work with. I'm saying, I'm not a medical doctor. That doesn't mean I'm going to say it's right for you, but I'm not the right person to have those conversations with. Sure. You have to decide as a person if you want to take medicine to help you feel better. And I've had some clients that say, no, they don't want to, not at all. Absolutely, then we'll figure it out. But just as an option, this this will also has been demonstrated to help mental health issues. And I guess at the end of the day, that's the thing is that there are so many other issues or excuse me, so many other possibilities, so many other things that most people never even really try. Right. Uh, oh. There's the talk therapy. Then there's the potential medicinal or combination of it. And nowadays with the SGB and the MDR and there's so many other things. Uh, that I think that most people think they find themselves in a circumstance where suicide is the only out, and it's it is the furthest thing uh, from what is necessary. It's never necessary, but it's they've just never tried anything else. Right, and you're absolutely right. There's different modalities to address a lot of things. There's uh, prolonged exposure therapy, EMDR, ACT, Sandra therapy. 
uh, art therapy, equestrian therapy, music therapy, you name it, it's out there. It's there to help. If it doesn't work, try something else. Sure, sure. So speaking of mental health and, and all the things that, that you know uh, or all the things that you specialize in, what are the officers in Minneapolis looking forward to? What are some of the things that they're going to face um, with the uh, consent decree looming, uh, with the morale of the agency and their extremely low numbers, um, and just with the settlement in, uh, in Minneapolis as it is? Well, within the city itself, staffing is probably going to be the biggest thing. I mean, depending on who you talk to, what statute you read, there are anywhere between 150 and 300 cops light. And that doesn't mean that there's not people in those bodies or spots. That just means that they might be on leave, light duty, or, or workman's compensation. Um, so their staffing levels are extremely thin. Um, the fact that their department has just confirmed and agreed to a state consent decree and looks like it's going to sign a DOJ consent decree, that just comes with more micromanagement. I mean, that's the city's decision to, to ultimately do and the Department of Justice to bring forth those uh, patterns and practice uh, investigations. But nobody is going to want to work there. Nobody is going to want to do the job. Um, so it's just going to be thinned down. Uh, this is coupled with the media focus in the area as a result of the George Floyd, Derek Chauvin event that has made Minneapolis a catalyst and a change agent, and it seems like it's uh, brought almost every week something similar about what's happening or how we're not going forwards, we're going backwards. Um, it's going to take generations to see real substantial change. I think one of the most important pieces that I left out of an interview I did with uh, Minneapolis was the real change needs to come with the city, the police department, and the local community, those are the folks that need to drive change. They're the ones that need to come to a consensus on what they want the city of Minneapolis to be for their police department. An outside influence like uh, State Department of Health, State Department of Human Resources or Human Rights, or even the federal consent decree folks, they're a lens from outside that doesn't understand the real issues of Minneapolis. It's putting everything on the table and addressing the problems. And that's where you need to you need people to be from in that community there. <clears throat> the officers are going to be dealing with a lot of micromanagement and scrutiny. So I would say anxiety and potentially obsessive compulsive adjacent behaviors are probably going to spike. People are going to think about how did they handle the call? Did they do it right? Uh, will it be reviewed? Will they be subject to discipline? Um, so you're going to have a lot more anxious behaviors. You're going to have a lot more mistakes, little mistakes being made. Um, you're going to have probably a lot of officers leaving within the first one to three years. They're going to get their get their ticket punched, and they're going to get their experience, and they're going to find somewhere else because they know they can. Uh, just about every Minneapolis metro agency is down about 30 to 35% guys. It's pretty much just if you're a veteran cop, even with baggage, you got, you got a good chance of getting picked up somewhere else. It's not like it was in the 90s where you... You know, if you had a DWI, you weren't getting hired for another five to ten years. It was, oh, you got a DWI and a couple of days off? Well, we have two applicants, and, and you're the best one of the two, so uh, we'll take that. So let's do this for, for 
the patrol officers that don't understand necessarily consent decrees. After the Rodney King incident in 94, the uh, Congress passed a law that allowed um, the Department of Justice to sue, take over, and investigate agencies for a pattern of practice of civil rights violations. Those civil rights violations could be unconstitutional force, stops, searches, seizures, whatever that is. There have been a ton of agencies over the last 20 to 30 years, or actually since 94, uh, that have come under a consent decree. Very few places have actually challenged the the DOJ investigation. So what they do is they come in, they do an investigation, and uh, they dig into the numbers. Allegedly, they use data scientists and experts. And almost every time that I know of, they say, yeah, you have a pattern of practice. They don't explain what a pattern is. They don't explain what a practice is. They just say you have a pattern of practice. So, and ultimately they end up, the agency settles with them and they go into this consent decree where they consent to be reformed. Uh, it generally, it essentially kills morale within the police department. Uh, crime goes up in those agencies. Uh, but allegedly, the quote-unquote unlawful practices uh, stop or slow down uh, to the point where uh, the monitor, the person who is assigned to that agency to essentially run its day-to-day operations and policies and training and you name it, uh, believes that there's no longer an issue. So starting from there, is there any evidence that in your review of, of the case, is there any evidence that the Minneapolis Police Department uh, has a pattern of practice of civil rights violations? Not have they violated rights, not have they unlawfully searched or seized people, what you would consider a pattern of practice, do you think it exists? I don't think there's a pattern of practice as demonstrated by the research that I've been able to review. I think there is a definitely demonstrable that Minneapolis is an aggressive police agency that deals with their policing problems in a very proactive, law enforcement-friendly way, if you will. It's not, it, it wasn't very political. They let the cops do their jobs which led to some abuses and problems. And just because you have abuses and problems doesn't necessarily mean you have a pattern of practice. One of the things I looked at when I did the Minneapolis Police Review of the DOJ is their sample population, their data sets, I challenged that because I don't think their data can be replicated. They said they did all these ride-alongs, all these community meetings. Well, if you're going out and looking for the problem, are you going to find the problem? And how many people are going to be going to the same community meetings and talking about the same problem? So you need to understand if they're talking about one incident or if they're each talking about individual incidences. Because if they're each talking about the same incident, but you have 100 people talking about it, it's still statistically only one event. It's not 100 events. So um, that's my own little twist on it. Uh, I think Minneapolis is going to struggle like every other police agency has. Uh, I think they're going to get through it as best they can. I think the people that are really going to suffer is the uh, citizens and stakeholders in the city of Minneapolis. Because the cops that are senior aren't going to care because they're going to retire in three to five years. The mid-level cops, they're just going to ride it out so they can retire. And the younger cops are going to get in and get out kind of like what's happening in Oakland. They get their one to three years and they go somewhere else. Sure. 
Well, and ultimately it, it matters because if, you know, I, I've followed consent decrees for years and um, when you talk about the data, they don't go to court and prove their case. Uh, the city ultimately uh, always settles with them or the county always settles with them. So there really is no evidence and or they don't have to show how they got uh, to the numbers that they got to. So when you're reviewing data, um, you're not actually reviewing data, are you? Are you just reviewing what they said is data, right? Their conclusion. Oh, there's a pattern of practice here. Yeah, we need to uh, step in and take over. But they don't show you. They don't divulge a methodology. They don't give you lists and charts and, and numbers. Uh, they don't say we reviewed 300 force incidents and 75% of them were unreasonable. They just say, yeah, this is this is unreasonable. Well, and I think that's the problem is that they have a, generally have attorneys doing the research. Um, of people that tend to be more consent decree positive or believe in the consent decrees. And I'm not saying that the consent decrees in and of themselves are bad, because let's be honest, there are some agencies that earn sure. their consent decree. Uh, there are corrections departments and sheriff's departments on the correction side that have earned their consent decree because of what they've done. Um, sure. I think we've all seen really, really poor policing um and we've seen uh you know just like you talked about in corrections things that you're just absolutely aghast at um but you know i i question whether the incident <clears throat> with derek chauvin and george floyd represented the minneapolis police department because any police department you go to you're going to find people that don't like it that have an issue um yep. and so if, if you have the incident with george floyd and derek chauvin Again, does that represent the Minneapolis Police Department? And and does that represent a pattern of practice? And generally, I would say that it doesn't. Now, I don't know about Minneapolis PD, uh, but I would tell you that um, I've seen agencies, excuse me, I've seen the DOJ step into places where it's a singular incident that got caught on video um, that, or I should say captured on video, that people now have an issue with, and the DOJ comes marching in. No pattern, no practice. Uh, no allegation of it, but ultimately, here's the DOJ. Yeah, um, I would agree with everything you said. Uh, what was that agency where it had that, uh, the four or five officers that were charged and they ran somebody down, plainclothes cops, and they found ties that the it was potentially connected to a gang and that the officers were loosely affiliated with that gang? Um, Just happened happened in the past year with a traffic stop or something going sideways. Oh, you're talking about uh, in Tennessee? Was that Tennessee? I, I knew it was in the South, but I'm aware. Maybe. Yeah, Memphis. Yes. Unfortunately, that... there's been a lot. There's been some in Ohio uh, where um, almost the entire agency has been rolled up, but uh, yeah. Now, with that, I could see them certainly using that as a singular incident to, to do a launching point into a unit or a division, but that should be the agency that does that to determine that, or that should be the organizational construct of bureaucracy. You almost said a great word there. Thanks for uh, 53 minutes of talking in great English there. Um, <laughs> that should be the municipality to conduct the investigation to determine if that unit it's creating problems, and that should be the unit's commander's concern and the, the chief's concern, and that's why they have 
chiefs of police to make sure that those things don't happen. Sure. You have attorney generals and they have laws on the states that allow uh, them to prosecute or investigate individuals for um, oppression under the color of office. And right. I, I'm not saying that the, the DOJ doesn't have a legitimate job. Um, right. What I'm saying is, is that um, the DOJ doesn't have a good track record of reforming anything uh, that I've seen. Um, and there's actually, they haven't proven to anyone. Most importantly, they haven't proven to the city, uh, the citizens of Memphis, or excuse me, uh, Minneapolis, that there is actually a pattern of practice. They've just said it. And you have all these faith and community leaders um, that are inviting the DOJ in. And that place is going to get destroyed. The the because this is documented, right? There is proof in places like Seattle and Albuquerque, and I believe it's Cleveland, where cops just go, "Okay, cool." And the number of young black men that are killed uh, just skyrockets uh, because crime is uh, out of control. Yep, in Oakland and Louisiana, New Orleans, uh, it's. It creates a de-policing movement. It creates a movement where the cops don't want to go out and do work. The proactive, the fun work. You know, the catching cops. I mean, the catching, catching cops. You got to make sure you edit that out. Uh, catching the crooks. You know, you're doing the hand-to-hand drug deal. You got the, the cops and the patrol officer uh, down the street watching, you know, dope being sold at, it's not the specialized unit that necessarily gets all those arrests. It's the young, hungry cop that is out there prowling the streets that catches people doing nefarious things. That's going to stop. Sure. Sure. And, that, I mean, that's ultimately, at the end of the day, that is the cornerstone of good police work, right? It isn't a detective that's that's got a case file that's 18 inches thick that's been, you know, looking for and following up on this guy for 18 months it's the uh, patrol officer that just sees something that eh, that's not right. And, and um, you know, he busts the operation wide open. And, you know, at the end of the day, that's it's going to stop. Well, that's like that. That's how they got the Atlanta City uh, or Olympic Park bomber, Eric Rudolph, dumpster diving. Yeah. That's how they got Timothy McVeigh, a trooper on a traffic stop. I mean, there's thousands of stories where people get uh, nabbed by uh, cops doing good work. It's yeah. not the, it's not the Jack the Ripper. We're solving the case. Ted Bundy, huge task force, folks. It's just some officer out there doing his job. Yeah, I agree. So, what do you have planned? Um, I, I know you've looked at the Philando Castile case. I know you've looked at Derek Chauvin. What would you tell young cops about those incidents, or? You know, what should they avoid? What should they do? What should they invest in? What advice do you have as a person who's looked into these incidents um, with a fine uh, microscope? Fine microscope. Do your, do your job. Know your laws. Know what you can and can't do. If your agency's not providing you training, you need to find it or get it. Uh, find a senior officer, a rabbi, whatever nickname your agency calls them. Someone to give you advice on a career, a mentor, if you will. Um, I still think it's as fun as what it was so many years ago when I started. 
Um, you just have to make it fun and realize that you just have to jump through different hoops. Uh, Body-worn cameras are here to stay. Cameras are around. Uh, if you do good police work, uh, sometimes awful things get captured on video that are completely righteous and reasonable. Sure. Do good police work. Think of Peel's original principles and follow those tenets. I can't harken back to anything that I think is probably more foundational. You know, John Locke's social contract theory is, is pretty big, but when it comes to principles, Peel's principles when it comes to law enforcement, read and understand those tenets, know your community. Do what you sign up to do. Yep. Do what you took the oath to. And have fun. All right. So, Matt, how does how does one get a hold of you again? What was the email address? Uh, the email is mnbluelinetherapy at gmail.com. That's uh, mnbluelinetherapy at gmail.com. Uh, you can find me at uh, LinkedIn with uh, uh, Matt Matthew or Matt Steam in Minnesota. There's two of us, by the way. Uh, there's only one with this lovely beard, and uh, uh, the other and gentleman the other does. <laughs> uh, he's a grocer. I actually think he's what he is. He works. Uh, at, that's a simplification of his job. He does something down in another community related to agriculture and marketing or okay. something like that. But he clearly doesn't have any um, law enforcement or criminal justice connection. Okay. All right. All right. Anything else you want to hit? I'm good for today. <laughs> I didn't realize that was 59 minutes and 43 seconds. Yeah, you're, that, you're, that was a while. You're, you're like talking, oh, this will be like 20 minutes, and all of a sudden it's like, ah. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I said 20 minutes. I thought I said, hey, we'll do 20 minutes on this and 20 minutes on this. <clears throat> yeah, that was cool. Um, so uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to stop this here. Good, because now I can go.